The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the Pokepress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. In this episode, Andrew BK Podcast joins me to discuss the music of Super Smash Bros. Brawl for the Wii. This entry in the series massively expanded the number of available tracks, so the two of us had to be very picky in narrowing that down. After that topic, we have our feedback section, where I give a detailed explanation of why Pokemon the first movie doesn't look completely uniform, and how that might be... fixed. Finally, be sure to listen after the outro, where we have a brawl gameplay discussion and a preview of our next episode. Thanks. Hi folks, Steven here. I'm on the phone with Anne from PKE Podcast. And in our break between the fourth and fifth generation of Pokemon side game music discussions, we've been around just a little bit, and we're going to be discussing the music and other sound aspects of Super Smash Bros. Brawl for the Nintendo Wii. So, in a prior discussion, we covered both the original N64 Smash Bros. and Melee for the GameCube. By this point, things had changed a little bit structurally. Um, this was developed by Sora Limited and I guess an ad hoc team at Nintendo rather than by HAL Laboratories. Mainly that was, I think, because Masahiro Sakurai had sort of uh, gone off on his own and was working on various projects, but keeps getting roped in to work on the next Smash Brothers. So you'll see Sora Limited, I think, on all of the subsequent Smash Brothers entries. As far as when this was released, it was released 2008, regardless of where you were. Japan was on January 31st, 2008. North America was on March 9th. And Australia and Europe got it within a day of each other. Australia was on June 26th, and Europe was on June 27th. Now, for a couple of reasons, this game was highly anticipated. Of course, Melee was the highest-selling game on the Nintendo GameCube, and, and just there was a ton of anticipation because of that, um, and because there had just been like a, like a six-and-a-half-year gap between us. There's just a lot of folks looking forward to, to what this would be. I think, I believe it was originally announced before the Wii was uh, released, and they sort of announced that Sakurai was working on it. But uh, I, I remember they have, you know, the, the Smash Brothers website. They were posting updates virtually every day in the months leading up to it because this was hotly anticipated. And what was your kind of experience? Um, well, I was, I was about in college about that time, so obviously I played Brawl. It was kind of, you know, the classic party game that you get with all your friends together. So I don't... I don't know if I remember a lot of the lead up to it, a lot of the, like, the advertising and kind of the anticipation of it. But it's like the second it came out, all my friends had it. We were playing it, you know, every get together, every spare minute between, <laughs> you know, college student things. So I remember having a lot of fun with this and it being really well received because it had, you know, so many new stages, so many new characters. My, my memories are all very positive. Yeah, once I finally got my hands on the game, I did play it quite a bit, including the uh, the new single-player mode, Subspace Emissary. 
uh, which we may talk a little bit in our game discussion at the very end of all this. But uh, definitely enjoyed it a lot. Um, I did have some problems actually replaying it recently. Um, Brawl is one of the very few Wii games that comes on a dual-layered disc, and I'm not sure if there's a problem with the disc itself or if there's something with both my Wii U and my original Wii that doesn't like to read that. But I would get partway through a play session, and all of a sudden it would just lock up with a, an error screen, and you had to like turn the system off. But uh, it was a big game uh, in more ways than one. All right, well, as far as the musical style or stuff like that, that's we can't really pin that one down this. Um, Smash 64 had about 10 to 20 different tracks in it. Melee had a couple dozen. This has well over 100 musical tracks on it and marks the point where the Smash Brothers series expanded massively, both from a musical perspective but also from others. I think that after the first couple games, uh, by this point, the franchise's stature had grown so much that it was very lucrative to be involved with. So we won't be talking about the individual people involved because there's way too many of them, nor can we really <laughs> pin it down to a specific style because, as you're going to see from the selections that we made, you got a pretty good range on this. All right, well, we did each pick out three songs. The way we sort of did this is uh, there's about 10 or 12 Pokemon tracks in the game. And there's also, uh, obviously, a lot of other stuff. So what we did is we each picked two Pokemon tracks and one non-Pokemon track. So, Anne, what were the songs you picked? Yes. So I picked the Pokemon Center, the Dialga-Palkia battle, and the Song of Storms. Okay. So I picked Road to Viridium City from Pallet Town slash Pewter City, Victory Road, and Bramble Blast. Now, if you've played more recent versions of Smash Brothers, you might also know it under the, the name Stickerbus Symphony. We'll get into that when we get there. Actually, the correct name is Sticker Brush Symphony. But, Anne, it looks like one of your choices is up first. Tell us about the Pokemon Center remix track in this game. Yeah, so I picked this because typically the Pokemon Center theme is a very soothing... A um, little bit of energy, but it's just a very calming track that plays as you enter in and take care of your Pokemon. They made this sound like a battle theme, and I thought that that was some very clever arranging to take this delicate, you know, very positive do 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 do, and make it like da 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 da, and just there's timpani everywhere. There's an interesting section where there's a, they go heavy on the trumpets, so it kind of almost feels a little bit like Latin mariachi flavor or like ska even or something. But there's also moments where they let that original delicacy of the Pokemon Center theme come through with like a flute and a woodwind interlude and then like a piano interlude. So like this track just goes so many different places, but it carries this grandeur that you don't usually associate with the Pokemon Center theme. And so that's why I picked it. Yeah, it's definitely one of the more interesting arrangements of that. Now, according to my records, it was done by Kentaro Ishizuga. I, I can't quite, this is a, that's a little hard even by Japanese standards for me. <laughs> and I tried looking this, this, I assume it's probably a guy up and mm -hmm. didn't see any other credits besides this game. Any idea who this is? Um, Kentaro Ichizuga, uh, no, um, I wasn't able to find a ton on him as much as uh, many others. 
um, unfortunately. He, but you're right, it is, is a man. He's working um, with the Pokemon company. I have in here that he's... I don't think he's a freelancer. I think he works with Nintendo in-house, but I could be wrong about that because I do see like a lot. He's had kind of a long career working in video game music. Interesting. Maybe some of that is under an alias or a pseudonym or something like that or a stage name or whatever because, I, like I said, I looked online. But going back to the instrumentation itself, actually what this reminded me of, I mean, the... From a hardware perspective, this is much more advanced than the N64, but it did remind me of some of the stuff they had done for the Pokemon Stadium games, and I think that was an influence here. Uh, how do you feel about that? That makes sense. Like, it, it it definitely has kind of that, what were we saying back with Pokemon Stadium, like almost marching band. Um, Like, it definitely has kind of that idea to it with, like, very strong drum beats, very strong full orchestra, full, like, band arrangements that I think kind of fit the aura that Stadium was trying to give off. I I feel like this executed it better and, you know, much more high fidelity. Like, they sound like live instruments. But I I definitely can see where, like, that through line can come through. And I guess another thing I wanted to mention, you you talked about how this was a little more energetic and, and, you know, less soothing than the regular (laughs) one. It's also a bit of an ironic use that it's being used in a... Like, Pokemon sometimes gets flack for being a battling-type game with animals, but this is literally a fighting game, and yet you're <laughs> using this this music that is usually associated with a um, basically a hospital-type place. While uh, you're beating <laughs> Mario's face, and yes. <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting choice to rework that for this. Obviously a very iconic, identifiable theme from the franchise, but also, you know, a kind of a bit of an odd choice. Very much so. (laughs) All right, well, let's go on to my first pick. This is Road to Viridian City from Pallet Town slash Pewter City. Now, remember the way the game works is that, you know, you have Viridian City, um, and then there's a route above and below it and all that stuff. And it uses both the sort of Route 1 slash Early Route theme from uh, Red and Blue, it also uses the Viridian City theme, which technically is also used in several other cities there. The person behind this arrangement is Shogo Sakai, who is very much a known person. He worked, I think he still works at HAL. He actually went freelance earlier in 2023, I believe, and definitely worked on the prior Smash Brothers games. So not a huge surprise there. I do kind of wonder how they allocate some of this. Some of this they sought people out. Some of it, I'm sure, was first come, first served with remixing or rearranging certain songs. But uh, as far as this particular one, there's, there's two very distinct sections. There's a march section, which is based on the, the root theme. And then there's a, a harpsichord section, which is the Viridian City game theme in there. And uh, I kind of wonder, you know, structurally what they're going for. But Anne, first I want to give you, what what were your sort of first impressions on this? Well, this is another track that goes a lot of different places because it starts off very like, as as you say, march, dun, 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 dun. And then it almost sounds like like a tin whistle or a piccolo or something with playing that little do-do-do-do theme. It's like, it, it feels very like festival or carnival almost even but then like it has a moment where it like 
I think that's an electric guitar that comes in and it's uh, just kind of just has a very different feel to it. Then later you get, yeah, like uh, you say a harpsichord. So it's just, again, a totally different feel with a slightly different melody, obviously, because we're, it's the Viridian city theme. So yeah, like this is just a track that's, it's doing a lot. It's going a lot of different places, but none of it feels uncoordinated. Like, you know, they're very disparate musical ideas that all bleed into each other in a seamless way that you just kind of go along on the journey and you never feel like a jarring switch of musical style or instrument. Yeah, structurally, it seems like there's there's a journey aspect to it. And I kind of mm. wanted to expand on that and, and say that, you know, you got the uh, the march, which is sort of like, honestly, kind of leaving your hometown there if you're coming from Pallet Town. And we all know, like, in the, in the first episode, how the, there were some of those crowds to send off some of the trainers on their journey. Um, and then you get to the harpsichord part, which I guess, you know, I do kind of wonder, is that supposed to be sort of a, a pastoral grasslands theme? But it's the city theme, so is it supposed to be like a decadent city? Um, I do kind of wonder what their exact objective. I mean, from a strictly musical standpoint, it definitely works. I was just kind of curious if you had any thoughts. Well, I mean, the Pokemon world, especially as we encounter it in the anime, but a little bit in the games too, like you've got your Saffron and your and your Celadon cities with skyscrapers, and then you've also got little podunk Japanese town out of nowhere, <laughs> like that seems to be still living in the Bronze Age sometimes. So I don't know, maybe they're trying to find a union between that. It's like we're on the road to Viridian City, but we also might pass through a farm that is using practices from the 1800s. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, like I said, who, the when they arranged this, they definitely had a sort of going from place to place motif in there. But and I don't think it's a bad track at all, but I just kind of <laughs> wanted to point that out there. Yeah, it's definitely a, a choice to have, again, to kind of, I, I won't say it doesn't have a through line. Like I say, everything feels like it connects and bleeds into each other. But like, they're choosing some very distinct, <laughs> different ideas <laughs> with each section of this song. All right, well, let's go on to Anne's second pick. This is the Dialga-Palkia battle at Spear Pillar. Of course, between Melee and Brawl, there were two generations of Pokemon, the third and the fourth generation. This is obviously from the Diamond and Pearl games. And what kind of grabbed your attention here? Yeah, so I, I was first grabbed by the track itself, um, which the first instrument I really noticed was like a wind sort of um, synth pad, which kind of charmed me a little because it, it sounded almost identical to one that I make a lot of use of in GarageBand. I'm sure it was a lot more uh, high class and effective than the programs I use, but like I just found that very charming. Is um, It just kind of had this wind feature and this nature feature, and then it kind of felt like we were going a little bit into the Twilight Zone, like just this very, very small intervals playing and um, piano and the timpani going hard, a little bit of the variation on the standard battle theme, but it is heavy and it's full of bass and drums and, and compared to the Pokemon Center theme, like very serious. So I found that track to just be a lot of fun and it very much felt like like, if we're not going to have a, a disruption of time and space, that at least we're going to have, like, a very meaningful type of boss battle. Yeah, definitely a, a, a track that you would expect would translate well to a fighting game like this. Uh, what can you tell us about Takahiro Nishi, the person who arranged this version? 
Yeah, so he um he works for Game Arts, or at least he he was at the time of all my notes. Um, he's kind of grown up with a lot of musical interests. Like he he says he listened to a lot of overseas music, like Elvis Presley and the Beatles. Um, over time, taught himself um, the electric organ, the acoustic guitar, joined a, a band in school, went to university to, and then worked for a music company right out and then started just kind of moving his way up through the music industry kind of more on the arranging side and sound producer and that's where he started his career with game arts he's worked a lot on um he's actually like worked a lot on um kid icarus uprising and i'm kind of surprised that he doesn't have any arrangement credits for that track on brawl that i can tell um but he's also got arrangement credits for um one of the pikmin tracks metal gear um and he's just kind of worked a lot through nintendo games and and yeah just kind of had his fingers in a lot of pots being an arranger because uh, you know a lot of people will compose a lot of different things for music for games and things but you know when you arrange it for something like brawl you get to draw from a lot of different places so he's gotten to have a very interesting career working with a lot of different styles yeah, some folks pinpoint this as sort of the uh, re-emergence of Kid Icarus in, in Super Smash Bros. Brawl. Of course, Uprising <laughs> came out in the 3DS uh, a, a bit later, but uh, also a, a Sakurai game in in that regard. So definitely seems to have a, a thing for that character. Mm-hmm. Well, so do I. So. <laughs> I. I mean, it's not surprising for me that they would pick this track. Obviously, it's it's still quite important. You know, obviously a little over a year ago in late 2021, we had the um, Diamond and Pearl remakes, and Spear Pillar shows up yet again in Legends Arceus. We actually get to see how it got to be the way it is there. So definitely a good choice, both musically and also you know, as an important location in the series. Any other thoughts on this track? Um, Again, just that it's like got a very unique quality to it, like I said, that makes me feel like I'm in the the twilight zone i'm i'm kind of interested in picking it apart more to kind of see like you know what is it that gives me that feeling is it is it the wind synth is it the very small like distance between the intervals is it the instrumentation itself and how everything is like a very low frequency bass sound i don't know but i i do find this track very deliberately composed yeah, the the wind noise and a lot of the instruments. I, I agree with you. With the the low end is definitely very prominent on this. Although, if, if you really want a track that really goes out there, I, I think my <laughs> next pick here, Victory Road, is a pretty good candidate. I'm not gonna say it's technically my favorite track, but it definitely stood out. It was arranged by Motoi Sakuraba, who is a very well-known video game composer and has worked on many games to this day. Kind of best known for his work. First of all, in the Mario sports games, so like the golf and tennis games, as well as the the Tales series, T-A-L-E-S. And, uh, you know, having heard some of his other work, not so much in the Mario sports games, which tend to be more laid back, but some of his work in, you know, various RPGs and stuff like that, uh, yeah, I can, I, I would buy that this is some of his work there. Um, it's... Victory Road, obviously, there's one of those in almost every game, although I guess in Scarlet and Violet, it is a a quest and not an actual physical place so much. But in the earlier games, this is always that route you go through to get to the Pokemon League after you've gotten all the badges. 
And uh, some places go very much for the empty, mysterious cave vibe, but this is actually from Ruby and Sapphire, which uses, I actually think, kind of a swashbuckling motif for it, and that uh, kind of translates over here. Uh, and uh, talked a lot about the, the original track. What were some of your impressions of this uh, remake of it? I feel like it was covered by Dragon Force or something. Like there, oh, I love the guitars. Like it just feels it's as close to metal as it can get without actually becoming a metal track. Just like there's just this sweeping quality to it, and like again, very electric, very heavy. Um, maybe not necessarily heavy in the drum sense, but like the the guitars are going, and there's this swag to it, like. If they went harder on the drums, I could easily see a metal band like covering the song in this way. There's something v- just very modern and wild about it that I like. Yeah, they definitely, uh, you know, uh, Sakuraba definitely went to town on this arrangement. <laughs> that's that's one of the reasons I, I picked it. I'm not sure, you know, this might have been, especially back then, out too out there for me to use on the station, although I'm fairly certain I had a recording of it. I'm not sure. But in, in any case... It, I mean, yeah, wild guitar, electric piano. There seems like there's some howling in there. Um, <laughs> I, I can totally see, assuming that he picked this track out himself to work on, um, I can totally see what might have attracted him to it. Um, so a- any other thoughts? I think you covered it pretty well, Anne, but uh, anything you want to <laughs> add on top of all that? No, not really. You bring up a swashbuckling quality to it, like definitely that energy feeds into it, even if the genre has completely changed. Making My Way Any Way That I Can has a longer history than you might be aware of. It doesn't go super far back, but the earliest version I found is by Winona Judd on the soundtrack to the 1996 Whoopi Goldberg business comedy The Associate. The song would then show up on a Marsha Hines album in 1999, which was soon followed by the Billy Piper version you're probably familiar with. Each of these features a different arrangement, but the more electronic instrumentation in Piper's rendition is probably what made it the choice for the Pokemon soundtrack. As for the lyrical content of the song, the theme of strength overcoming adversity results in an experience that I think would have fit in very well on To Be A Master. What's most interesting, however, is the way phrases that were originally intended as metaphors become literal when applied to Pokemon. The source material is a game in which you cross rivers and climb mountains. If you really want to stretch it, there's also references strength. Not bad for a song that was probably written before the games were even out in Japan. In any event, feel free to check out those other versions, there's at least one more that I didn't mention, and let us know what you think. Thanks. Believe it or not, that was, that was one of my picks. And let's go to your non-Pokemon pick. This is Song of Storms, which of course is originally from Ocarina of Time from the Zelda series. Very popular track, uh, but uh, what caught your attention in this particular arrangement? Um, Well, I was always going to pick this track um, just because my old roommate, shout out to Hallie, um, is kind of obsessed with the Song of Storms. And all my friends have kind of like, I'm in the Zelda fandom because they are so deeply in it. She loves the Song of Storms. to the point where, like, at one point she was writing lyrics for it and trying to, like, create her own variation on it and, and like, had a bard d and Zora character and was learning this song on the ocarina. <laughs> like, it's so, like, this is, 
has a lot of like personal love for me. Um, but I love the instrumentation in this track. Like it's very sweet and soft, but also kind of not unsettling, I guess, but like it, it has a weight to it, like an unease to it, maybe. Like there's the these synth bells, there's like a flute or an ocarina. There's also moments where it sounds like a sea shanty. Like it's just, it's very folky in a way that kind of captures a lot of the original ocarina of time feel. It's kind of captures the depth of the Zelda world and the mysteriousness and like, you know, it's fun and exciting and very Renaissance festival sometimes, but it is also deep and wild and full of magic. So there, there's a lot going on in this track that I find just very beautiful. And can you tell us anything about Tsukasa Masuko, who did this arrangement? Uh, I did notice, well, this was more of a, this is not to um, belittle his work. He did get stuck apparently doing some sound programming work for the rather infamously mediocre Quest 64 back in the 90s, but he's also worked on some of the uh, the Mana games. Uh, what can you tell us about this individual? Yeah, so I, I don't have a ton on him, mostly just his autobiography, but I do know that he does have an alias, Mako, which makes a lot more sense now that I've got his name right, um, and he's known a lot for his work with Atlas, um, uh, music and sound production company. Um, he served as a composer, a sound designer, and a programmer. Uh, is kind of, like, I have a lot of notes here that he's kind of been taken over in a way by Hirohiko Takayama, who's kind of moved to Atlas, and he's kind of moving into his retirement years. Um, but he's known for uh, the Shin Megami Tensai uh, series, some work with Karate Kid, um, Quirk, Biosenchidan, and uh, obviously a little bit of Zelda and so a lot of arrangement for Brawl. Yeah, I, I've, there were some credits that I found kind of interesting. Uh, but uh, going back to the song, you mentioned sort of the, the, the swirling quality. I think it might have been a word you used. I mean, certainly being a song of storms, you can talk about stuff like uh, weather patterns and whirlpools and you know maybe even a hurricane, stuff like that. I did notice that there's at least one or two other of the uh, Ocarina songs from Ocarina of Time in there. I forget exactly which one it is, but I think it's towards the end there. Did you catch that or did I did I get, misidentify it or? Um, I may not be the one to, to ask. You have a much better ear for picking out motifs than I do. Um, so I'm going to trust you on that. And like I say, I'm, I'm in the fandom because people I know are in the fandom, less because I can recognize songs at will. So I, I think you're probably right, but I I will trust you on this one. All right. Well, why don't we go on to my non-Pokemon pick? This is Bramble Blast, also known, I think more, the more proper title for this track is Stickerbush Symphony. It's originally from Donkey Kong Country 2, Diddy's Conquest. And this was a fairly well-respected and well-known song prior to this. Uh, it certainly was considered to be one of the best tracks in a very good soundtrack, Donkey Kong Country 2. But uh, before we go into this, I think that this rearrangement really kind of shot it into the stratosphere. It was done by Michiro Naruke, who is, I guess, best known for Wild Arms and Valis 3, uh, the Wild Arms series, I should say. And... Boy, I remember when I first heard this, I believe it was playing through the single-player subspace emissary mode. You run into it at a certain point. And 
it just kind of, I don't know if blew my mind, might be overselling it just a little, despite how, how much I love this. But it, it, it really transformed the song, which was already very good, into something like amazingly memorable. Um, it, it's almost as if someone took like, I don't know, made a new arrangement of like the Zelda, not the main theme, but maybe like the, the dungeon theme from the first game, and it just blew everybody away. That's kind of what this would, would be like. Um, or maybe it's closer to what was done with the temple theme from Zelda 2 when that got brought into Melee. And what are your kind of thoughts? As you say, like, I'm not, wasn't familiar with this track before we kind of did this project, but Blew My Mind is a, a way to put it, like, like, it's all, it almost feels like, in, in some ways, it has the energy of a dance track. In some ways, there's this guitar noodling that's so creative, like, it feels like an improvisation, not, you know, something that would have been very, you know, calculated or pre-existing. Um, and then there's like this violin or fiddle that goes in and it's it like, it's like, oh, oh my goodness, I feel like I'm getting emotional. Like there's so much creativity coming out of this track and it just really, it's it's not a track I expected to find on this soundtrack, to be honest. And it's very beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, all those instruments really combine into something. I mean, the only thing I could think, like, some of them are definitely synth, and I think maybe if you got the right, I don't know, like, replacing them with, like, real instruments, if you did, like, a studio performance might make it even more impressive, but I'm not sure if you could recapture everything in here. Just, like, regardless, this is a fantastic arrangement. It is, by the way, this specific track is one I've used on my uh, radio show, my pre-recorded radio show here in Madison from 8 to 64, um, but I think this, in some ways, might be more popular than the original version, despite the original version's relative popularity. I don't know. Have you heard, like, Stickerbush Symphony slash Bramble Blast refer to outside of context? What's your sort of feeling in that area? Well, like I said, this is not a track I'm familiar with. Um, I, I don't think I've heard a lot of people talking about it. I don't think I'd know it in any other context. Like I Like, I don't have any nostalgic memories of it although i'm sure i've heard it um but this like this is amazing <laughs> like i really love this so i can see how the original material must be must be a great track but this has clearly like taken it to another place but yeah <laughs> yeah so good on you michiko you really took something <laughs> you know you somehow made a diamond into a better diamond. I'm not sure, but um, and uh, one of our one of our people in our chat room, uh, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce this, but uh, B O K C underscore Ellis uh, said that uh, they uh, it's their favorite song in the game and uh, almost cried uh, once when hearing it. Now it is that beautiful. Like I say, it's amazing what they were able to do with with that track. So. Gosh, yeah, like, you get into the mood with the guitar noodling, but once that violin comes in, you're just like, oh my. <laughs> All right, well, like I said, there's over 100 tracks in this game. No way we could really cover all, or even a significant fraction. It's, it's sort of the same thing with sort of the Mystery Dungeon games, who I think those folks, at least some of them, also worked on some of the stuff for this game uh, as well. Uh, but we do need to talk about a few other things. Uh, one of those is the announcer. We've got yet another new announcer. It is Pat Cashman, who I thought was still the announcer in the more recent games, but apparently that's not the case. They have a different one for uh, 
3DS and Wii U, and then for Ultimate, I might use the same one as the, the Smash 4, but I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but this guy has kind of an interesting history. Uh, first of all, if he sounds familiar, well, you might have seen some old episodes of Bill Nye the Science Guy, because this guy is apparently from, uh, he grew up in Oregon, but uh, did most of his work in the Seattle area and worked as the announcer on that show, which I'm sure gives some folks some interesting dubbing opportunities <laughs> with the uh, voice samples from this game. As usual, that means he also voices the uh, hand characters, Master Hand and Crazy Hand. Is usually they usually give that the announcer voice. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I have too much else. I think he does a fine job uh, in line with some of the other folks who have done that. I don't know. Anne, uh, what, what are your thoughts on the announcer in this one? Um, like I, I usually don't pay a ton of attention, but like there is a quality to him that is like not campy necessarily, but like just grand enough just wild enough like just too big enough but not like so much that it takes you out of it and i think there's pat cashman being like a comedian among other other things in his career like maybe like helps him to kind of walk that line of like he can do the big comic book announcer voice but in a way that sounds like it it still fits in the world. It's not so much that it feels cheesy, but it's not so serious that you're, you know, it takes you out of the fact that you're you're playing with Mario. And so I don't know. I, I think he walks a very good line. Yeah, certainly gets the job done, and I would call it a, a good job. I'm not sure I have a, a super preference for any of the announcers or uh, then or now. So I, I'm not sure I can comment on that, but it is something we definitely have to put in there. As far as other sounds in the game, what do you think? Uh, any any thoughts on the character voices, sound effects, anything like that? Um, I mean, they're all very good. Like they sound like themselves. They sound like they're in pain. Um, every I've never been disappointed by any of them flying off the screen in a blaze of fiery glory. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I I think it's just very well produced sound wise. Like the sounds of everybody's punches and special attacks and everything, it, it it feels like they put all the attention in all the right places. That sounds about right. I think things sound pretty good overall. <laughs> Obviously, our big deal here was the music, but the sound effects and character voices, uh, Pokemon or otherwise, seem to do do pretty well there. There is some some good attention to detail, especially as the series moves on, where they'll hear slightly different variations and, and things of that nature. But uh, looking at the whole sound package of this game, I mean, as I said earlier, we really can't do this justice. There's just too much material here, and we've only covered a, a fraction of it. I mean, yes, Smash 64, Melee, they were good uh, sound-wise in their time stuff, but this just... You you go from a lake to like an ocean almost uh, in terms of the <laughs> scope here, and I think they. Well, I don't in necessarily love every track in there. I li really like a lot of them, and obviously a lot of heart and soul went into this um, from the part of the arrangers who worked on it. And what are your sort of overall uh, thoughts on the on the sound of this game? I would agree with everything you just said. Like it's taken a level not only from previous um, Smash games, but, like, to other games we've talked about on this series. Like, uh, the second I started listening to tracks of this, I was like, oh, oh, what a difference just in the sound quality, in, like, they're all arrangements of pre-existing tracks mostly, but the such creativity in those arrangements and, like, 
in some of the some of these tracks like a real loving twist on them like somebody really loves the um bramble um tracks somebody loves heavy metal <laughs> and um you know somebody really uh, had had a take on the song of storms and went with it i so i'm kind of just amazed by all the work that everybody put into this yeah, you can tell by this point that Smash Brothers had become sort of a destination or a desirable gig for, you know, musicians and also characters. We'll talk a little bit about some of the new characters in our post-discussion. But it, it, it was the game series you wanted to have a chance to work on, pretty much. All right, well, like we said, way more Smash brothers brawl stuff than we could ever fit into a, a discussion here but uh if you have anything you thought we really missed you can always give us a comment uh, either on these videos or you can drop us an email pokepress at gmail.com or on social media at pokepress on twitter but i do have some prior stuff that i wanted to go over in our feedback section here First off, let's see a few weeks before we recorded this i put up a short video shorts are ostensibly they're YouTube's attempt to compete with TikTok, uh, but I, I do find I get uh, some pretty good responses on these relative to some of my regular videos, so I think YouTube really just wants more of these or promotes them harder or something like that. In any case, this one is called Parts of Mewtwo Strikes Back Are Sharper Than Others. Here's why. So this is a, you know, they have to be under a minute. This is a brief explainer video that explains that the original Japanese 98 version was all shot on 16 millimeter film, but when they brought it over, they redid some stuff in 35mm, which looks a lot sharper. So uh, sort of the, the gist of this is that I did some testing using a deblurring AI model that I had. And, uh, you know, I asked folks, hey, does that look any better to you? Kind of, I don't want to go into the whole AI stuff. If you look through some of the uh, notes I had on, I go into the details about how this isn't the best necessary way to do it. This is more of a proof concept. But in any case, DDO3 put in, uh, personally, I didn't see much difference with the AI sharpness. I have the Blu-ray, but to be honest, I never questioned the blur. So yeah, this was something I kind of knew back when I originally saw it about the 16 slash 35 switch that they did in there. I don't know, Anne, kind of a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> did you want to comment on some of this? Sorry. To... Well, no, no. I, well, first I will point out a lot of this is over my head. <laughs> this is not not where I live. But I, I have to agree with DDD033. Like, for my part, I didn't see a ton of difference. Like, I've definitely noticed on a lot of movies, um, Mewtwo Strikes Back included, um, kind of older animation and how it looks on sharper televisions, on Blu-ray players. I don't believe I have the Blu-ray of this movie though i think i still have its original release and but like there is definitely a difference why that difference occurs the difference between 16 millimeter to 35 millimeter as i said is a bit over my head i do think it's interesting but i i am afraid i don't understand a lot of it uh, that, that's okay i mean the millimeters just means how big the the film was that they mm. were using it for and <laughs> 16 millimeter was commonly used like pre-high definition and even some into high definition for television production. Uh, 35 was more common for big feature films. 
so the the enhanced version of Mewtwo Strikes Back, by which I mean the 99 dub and also a, a version that was republished in Japan, not the CGI version, is a, a bit of a, an odd mishmash there. Um, but obviously having, you know, worked on some of this AI upscaling, which I think is kind of undersold lately, it's gotten sort of missed with some of the other AI projects going on, but I think this is one that's uh, definitely commercially viable in various ways. But I can certainly see the the difference there. It does look sharper. Now, with the ones where I really turned up the uh, the de-blurring, um, one problem is it kind of brings out the film grain more, almost as if mm. the fil- film was shot on a, a lower or a higher ISO of film, uh, which is a bit odd. But yeah, so it's one of our more technical discussions, and I'm sure a bit lost on our podcast audience, but uh, I'll toss a link in the episode description and you can take a look for yourself. Yes, famously visual medium podcasting. But it is is it is interesting to think that technology can do a lot to, I don't know, tinker with or restore old animation, even as it kind of transitions from one form to another or whatever. Like I said, it's all a bit over my head, but that it is very interesting that these kinds of things can be done. Yeah, one thing I want to try next is to see if I can use it to fix the uh, fourth and fifth movie transfers, which have some issues. The uh, the fourth movie, uh, the Celebi movie, has a somewhat soft transfer when that was brought over to Blu-ray, and then movie five has the infamous blue tint. This would be a great use for this type of technology if it's something that you can save you the trouble of doing a new transfer from scratch from the uh, original uh, film source. Mm. So, yeah. But basically what you need to know is the difference between 16 and 35 millimeter, and there's, a, there's other sizes too, 8 millimeters, uh, 70 millimeter IMAX. Basically, the more millimeters you have, it's like having a camera, a digital camera with more megapixels is sort of the way of doing it. Although film grain and pixels aren't really the same thing, they have a similar effect when you have more of them. All right, so this is one I did, let's see, about four and a half years ago. And I apologize for the folks who are watching this live. My hair is not <laughs> very good in, in this thumbnail that you're seeing, so maybe avert your gaze. Sorry if it's too late. <laughs> so this is, does Octopath Traveler have better Shinji Miyazaki music? So this is actually kind of, I guess, good timing. As we're recording this, the second Octopath Traveler game is uh, about to come out uh, the month after we're recording this in February of 2023. And it does, in fact, have the same composer behind it. Um, But we got a comment from Gordy, uh, who is a big fan of Shinji Miyazaki, but kind of admits, and this is sort of my criticism too, even though I'm less of a fan of his work, is that the the newer stuff that Shinji has put in is a bit like resting on his laurels. But he did suggest as an alternative, the person behind, oh gosh, I don't know, let's see, that there's a, a composer called uh, Konis, I'm not sure exactly who that is, but uh, who worked on the Pokemon Twilight w- Wings uh, web series. This was a bunch of animated shorts that were done to promote Legends Arceus. I got Twilight Wings and Hisuian Snow confused here, but they both have the same composer anyway in uh, 2022 and thought that might be a good one. And, you know, I, I've had my own ideas too. I'd like, I'd love to see, like, I'm sure that... Um, Tsukasa Tawada is working on whatever the next thing Genius Sonority puts out is after Cafe Remix. But if he has some time, I'd love to have him work on the TV show or the movies. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I'm, I, I guess I'm probably also a little more accepting of Ed Goldfarb's where he's done some better stuff when he's been allowed to use game music in his arrangements. But I think that the stuff he's done for the TV show is, and in movies where he's worked on a replacement dub uh, score has been at least, you know, a lateral move. So, uh, but I know he also has his, has his stern critics. Um, so we talked a little bit about that. Uh, Gordy also mentioned that he's frustrated that, like, like the newer Pokemon games have not had any sort of soundtrack releases. Like, the last one, I believe, is Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee, and that's from 2018. And so we're still waiting for Sword and Shield, Legends Arceus, uh, Brilliant Diamond, Shining Pearl. Say nothing of, like, uh, I think there might have actually been, a, uh, like, a limited CD-slash-vinyl release for the uh, Mystery Dungeon remake. I think I saw that on eBay for much more than I was willing to pay. <laughs> The Scarlet and Violet soundtrack appears to have gotten a similar partial vinyl release. Um, but as far as, like, you know, all the games they've released since then, say nothing of, you know, I, th- I think I've heard that Pokemon Masters is working on some sort of release, which I hope they are, given the, uh, the uh, amazing quality of the soundtrack in that game. But, yeah, so, yeah, the only Scarlet and Violet track you can really get uh, commercially is Celestial, so not the hate on uh, Ed Sheeran or anything. Uh, there's plenty of other people on the internet who can do that. But, uh, yeah, so that's that's been annoying. I don't know. Anne, I'm sorry. <laughs> I really should have given this back to you a little bit sooner, but um, any thoughts on anything I just uh, spat out there? Well, we I feel like we have almost talked to death. Our um, opinions and uh, slightly tepid to disillusionment with uh, some of Shinji Mizaki's later Pokemon music. I am all for giving the reins to, or at, or at least adding another chef to the kitchen for future movies and anime. And I, I agree. Like Pokemon Twilight Wings, like there are some new creative ideas in there from Konish. Like I, I am all for tossing him in the mix um, and kind of just getting some new blood in with the old guard and shaking things up a little. And as always, <laughs> uh, the situation with Pokemon music and releasing is a, a wild, unknown frontier where we, we just do not know what legal things are happening and why. <laughs> so It's kind of just weird. Um, <laughs> apparently the Twilight uh, Wings soundtrack, the score, was actually released as like a, a pack-in bonus for, for something in the Pokemon Center Japan. And uh, someone did try and sell it on eBay for more money than I would probably pay for it <laughs> again. Uh, not nearly as crazy as what they did for the listing I saw for the Mystery Dungeon stuff, but yeah. Like but I said, I don't... He, go ahead. I was going to say, Gordy makes a, a good point. Like, if they're going to pass out a CD to people, they could just as easily put the music on iTunes. Like, when I have released music, it is a heck of a lot easier to get the licensing rights to just distri- digitally distribute it than it is to physically distribute anything so it's kind of like they got the fi- the rights to physically distribute this but w- couldn't or wouldn't put it on a-, a digital so i again i don't know what they're what's happening i don't know their contracts but it strikes me as odd that they got those rights but not these ones it's very strange to me but who knows <laughs> yeah so i i can only assume there's some sort of weird contractual hurdle in all of this like considering that like they haven't even released Pokemon soundtracks for the new games in Japan. So it's not as if they're not putting them out in the West. Right. Uh, with, with a few exceptions, like I, we mentioned earlier. But 
It's that that the main series games aren't getting there. You know, I thought with like Sword and Shield, oh, maybe they're waiting for the DLC to come out. But even after that, and then you know, a month or two later, it's like still nothing. So it's like, okay, you know. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's that's still a mystery to us. But what's not a mystery to us? Uh, we're going to start doing discussions of Gen 5 side games. It did take me a little bit of digging because it kind of gets to be a little bit of a mess of at least like three different systems for the Gen 5 side games. But uh, from what I can tell, the first one to be released in North America is Pokemon Rumble Blast. This is the second of the Pokemon Rumble games, and this was a full-price like retail game that came out in 2011, it looks like. Now, a lot of the music here is actually inherited from like the WiiWare Pokemon Rumble game. Um, so I, we're going to have to take a look and see how much new music there is and if this is going to be a full discussion or if we're going to split the episode somehow. But either way, um, I certainly look forward to talking about this one. It's, it's obviously not quite on the brawl scale, but it's definitely worth talking about. And I, I don't know, if, did you have a chance to pick up this version of the, of the uh, Rumble series? I have, actually. I think I used to own it, in fact. Um, I don't believe I do anymore, but I'll check my, my bin of, <laughs> of used game cartridges <laughs> and see if it's still there. See if I can get a refresher. All right. Well, until then, Anne, thank you very much for being on. Thank you. This has been Stephen Reich. All right, folks, thanks. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. All right, well, let's talk about Super Smash Bros. Brawl, the game, and quite a game it was, both in terms of sales and uh, reputation and opinions. Uh, most people very much liked it. There were uh, certainly some folks who weren't as happy with it, but let's start off with the, actually what I, what I consider to be the big new mechanic in this game, which is the final smash. So each character has a, a sort of finishing move, I guess you could call it. Basically what it does is you have some sort of mega powerful move that you have to grab from like a sphere that appears and you have to be the first person to like break it open and then use it. There's actually some evidence they wanted to do this earlier in the series as far back as the original Smash Brothers on the N64 and just didn't have time to implement it based on some voice clips that are there. But, Anne, what did you sort of think of this mechanic? Well, (laughs) I have never once ever successfully uh, gotten that sphere. I'm not, like, people have tried to explain it to me. I've never figured it out. I've never gotten it done ever, even by accident. But, like, I I do think it's a cool mechanic, and it has utterly wasted me many a time. But I I cannot get it. I we've established on this podcast I am not good at video games I just like video games. Well well if you want to give it a shot and you do get a, a copy of this game if you go into the event battles which are back from uh from Melee there is a, a event battle that gives you a chance to test out the Landmaster one that uh, Fox McCloud has uh relatively easily so if you at least want to practice that it doesn't even make you break open the thing you just have it automatically. So let's talk about some of the new characters. First off, on the Pokemon front, well, we lost Mewtwo and Pichu, uh, but we got Lucario, 
which, you know, like has not exactly the same moveset as Mewtwo, but has some similarities. But I think the big one there is that the more damage it takes, the more powerful it gets. I mean, obviously, if they're going to choose a super popular Pokemon from Gen 4, Lucario is a pretty good choice. And if I'm correct about this, like, because this was 2008, like, I was in Japan at this point, like, Lucario and the Mystery of Mew movie was still going strong. Like, I could still buy that in a grocery store. So, like, I can see how that guy was real popular and a real must-have character for this one. Yeah, I mean, like, for fourth gen, most popular new Pokemon, I think it's pretty much either Lucario or Darkrai. And Darkrai, I can't, I mean, I'm sure they could make a fighter out of it. I think it appears from the Pokeballs, at least. Mm. I don't know if it's in this game or later ones, but you kind of get the idea there. And then the other new Pokemon character uh, is Pokemon Trainer, which has a Charizard, an Ivysaur, and a Squirtle. Now, they do sort of share a health bar and stuff like that, but you can swap between them, which is a very interesting mechanic. There's some evidence uh, that they wanted to also do something with, like, Plusle and Minin, uh, but this is what we actually got in the game. Any thoughts on that character? Um, I remember feeling a little disappointed. Like, you can still fight as Pikachu, but I always thought the Pokemon trainer character and getting to call it your Pokemon like felt a little bland, a little complicated because you can't choose which Pokemon you want when. Like I would rather be a Pokemon or I would rather be Ash. And I always, so I always felt a little disappointed by the Pokemon trainer, but I liked the idea. Um, I never chose it, but. Yeah, I don't know that I ended up using that character that much. I've talked to a few people who have talked about either, you know, playing as Pokemon Trainer in the game's word exists or playing against it and what that's kind of like. And they've had some, I don't know if mixed is the right way to put it, but it, it's it's interesting, even if it may not be the, you know, it's certainly not for everybody, which I guess no Smash character is. That's true. Um, but uh, the other new characters we should definitely mention is this is the first Smash Brothers game with non-Nintendo franchise characters. Uh, so this kind of dates back to Melee because actually partway through Melee's development, I think someone from Sega and also someone from uh, Konami really wanted to have Sonic uh, because Sega had just gone third party and then also uh, Solid Snake <laughs> from the Metal Gear series in there, and it was just too late to integrate either of them into the game. And back then, you couldn't do, like, you know, DLC, unless maybe you were on Xbox. But this time around, we got Sonic the Hedgehog, and we got uh, Snake, and I think those are the two. We get more in the later games. You know, that is really interesting. After all those years, you know, of in the 90s, particularly of the, you know, Sonic uh, and Sega versus Nintendo and Mario rivalry... (laughs) I, I, I think that the actual the Olympics games also started coming out around this time between Mario and Sonic. It was seeing them sort of bury the hatchet, sort of. They still get to fight each other. To see that in a game like that. Um, and actually, there was a, a infamous uh, gaming magazine, April Fool's Day joke regarding Sonic and Melee, which obviously was, was fake. So finally having all that here was kind of nice. What was that like? Was that like a bit of a culture shock thing? Or how did you feel about it, Anne? Okay, so like me personally, I didn't care. I do have a, a friend in my life who like Sonic versus the Mario franchise is like a thing. Like we once did a group Halloween costume where like all of my girlfriends, we were Rosalina Peach and and Daisy, and, like, we're trying to get him to go as Mario or Bowser, 
And, like, he absolutely refused to be Mario because he's like, my loyalty is to Sonic. And so it's I, I understand for some people this is, like, a big thing. For me, I didn't care. I was just like, oh, cool, uh, another character. So I am lame, but I appreciate um, the fun novelty of having Mario and Sonic go at it. Yeah, it's interesting to see that in an official context like that is sort of a little bit mind-blowing, you know, the dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. <laughs> um, but uh, we'll get even more of it in the later games, in part because, well, like I said, in, in uh, Smash 4, they have they had Mega Man, although they lose Snake, and then Ultimate, they have, you know, with a lot of the DLC characters, they even have, in, in Ultimate, they even managed to, get, you know, patch things up with Microsoft that owns Rare now, and they got Banjo-Kazooie, you know? <laughs> yeah, we got, we got Cloud and Sora, and, like, we got cr- all kinds of things now. <laughs> But, um, yeah, so it, it, if you think this is just the start of, of things to come in the franchise, <laughs> I guess the one group of folks who, I don't want to totally discount them, that uh, weren't as happy with Brawl was certainly the competitive scene. And I, like I said, I don't want to totally discount their opinion. You're certainly, you don't have to think everything's an improvement or, you know, the game. There's definitely some stuff in, in Brawl that was done to make it more more of a party game. Part of that it was just the, uh, they slowed down the pace a little bit. Um, and they ah. also added some stuff that, well, well, the one, there were a couple things that competitive players really didn't like. One of those was the tripping mechanic that you randomly trip sometimes when changing directions or suddenly moving or stuff like that. <laughs> you, can, you can imagine why fighting game folks wouldn't really like that one. Yeah, people have honed their skills to, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then you always have to have that in the back of your mind. So I can totally understand that. The other thing is that uh, this is, unfortunately, does, this game does not allow patches, at least uh, official ones. So, you know, the competitive scene ended up banning infamously Meta Knight, one of the new uh, characters in the game, and because uh, they just felt he was too overpowered. Uh, and they had some other quibbles with it. They wanted to basically make it play more like Melee um, mm. and restore some of the deleted characters and stuff like that. Um, so there is sort of, let's just say there's some custom versions of Brawl out there or some modified versions out there. Don't really want to endorse those, but I'm not going to pretend they don't exist either. <laughs> and I understand why some folks, you know, that's always a little bit of a, a strain between there is that, you know, you have to make a game that sells well enough. Because this is pretty much, I guess at this point, it might well be the highest selling fighting game series other than maybe Street Fighter. Um, I don't know. We'll be talking about Street Fighter as a comparison point in a future side game discussion. I can tell you that much. <laughs> But uh, overall, this version was pretty well received, sold very well. It is more or less replaced by some of the newer ones. Obviously, we're still in the Smash Ultimate era. I suspect that when Nintendo finally does release a new system, at some point in that console's lifetime, there will be a Smash Brothers game of some sort, just because it's such a reliable... It, 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 the other interesting thing about all of this is crossovers. You know, people sort of decry them in TV and movies, say, uh, you know, Freddy versus Jason, it's just so much wasted potential, and why won't they finally make that Robocop Terminator movie or stuff like that? <laughs> in video games, you know, when crossovers happen, they tend to work really well. And I'm not sure if that's because, like, the, the seriousness standards is lower or different in video games than it is in a movie or TV show. Or if because they're both they're all electronic in nature, they can mesh more easily. I don't know, but yeah. uh, that's an interesting thought. Like too, because my my thought was in a video game, 
it's not static. It can change every time you play it, your experience with that mashup. And, and like, every, literally every time you put those two characters together, it will be a different experience. And it doesn't have... The emotional lifting, I suppose, is done mostly by you and your friends. So, yeah, like, there's a lot to consider there that it does seem to work really well in video games and maybe not so much in other media. Yeah, I don't know if it's just embracing the cheesiness that comes from these types of interactions or what, but, yeah, so, like I said, I, I definitely enjoyed this game. Um, I won't say it's perfect or anything, but I think, Anne, it sounds like you had a great time, too. I, I have never not had a good time with a Super Smash game, but, yes, I have a lot of fond memories of this one in particular. Yeah, and, and actually, the, the final Smash does have one interesting interaction with one of the characters. Uh, DED033 was very excited to be able to play as Zero Suit Samus, and Samus has that kind of weird interaction with the final Smash where she switches between her two forms when you use the final Smash. So she'll switch from regular to zero or zero and, and back whenever you use the final Smash there. They didn't do that again, I don't think, for some of the other ones. They kept them as separate characters, I think. But that was that was kind of an interesting use of that mechanic. Yeah, that's um, way cool. Uh, that was back when I had mutton chops and stuff like that. Um, so even though I definitely look younger, I'm not sure I look better. You're full of enthusiasm, though. And, and, and then also, actually, going along with that, if they could somehow get Sony to make peace with them, I, they own the Lemmings franchise. I would have loved to have that in, in Smash <laughs> Brothers, but I guess that's not meant to be. Um, well, <laughs> not yet likely this Mickey Obata just just based on the timeline and the um, companies that they worked through probably is a male. They may have worked for Sega. That may be yet another Mickey Obata. There are apparently a lot of Obata Mickeys out there in the world. This is clearly a power name. So I basically found us more mysteries is what I found. Always good when our further discussions make us feel like we have less information. So That's what I'm here for.